I didn't see a Bond film in the theater until Goldeneye, but I remember seeing Dr. No, Goldfinger, and even some of the Timothy Dalton films. I remember seeing those when I was like six or seven years old before I even saw Star Wars. Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric. And I'm Johanna. Johanna, what media have you been watching since we last talked? I went and saw Cruella yesterday in the theater, which was uh, actually surprisingly fun. I went in with low expectations. My low expectations were far exceeded. They took a really interesting direction and made Cruella this sort of like punk rebel fashion figure sort of meant to be a symbol of the new edgy you know queer friendly kind of outcast going up against the establishment which is very different from what you picture Cruella DeVille to be based on the animated story but I have to say show is completely stolen by Emma Thompson as of, uh, they somehow managed to create a villain who is more villainous than Cruella DeVille in order to set up Cruella as a sympathetic character. And Emma Thompson is just so freaking amazing. I mean, she's good in every movie she's in, but you rarely get to see Emma Thompson play the villain, and she is spectacular. Well, I never saw any of the live action 101 Dalmatians or anything like that, but I did see the original animated film, 101 Dalmatians, I had to take my sister to the multiplex to see that film. And my parents went into the other theater and watched a different movie. They went to see Moonraker. The running time of 101 Dalmatians is much shorter than Moonraker. We came out and we went to the lobby and said, we don't know where our parents are. And they said, they're still in the movie. And the usher took us kids into the theater to be reunited with our parents. And I was very into sci-fi at the time. I was really interested in astronauts and science fiction and all of that from a very young age. And so I saw what they were watching, pretty much the final scene <laughs> in Zero G, which uh, is not actually G-rated, but Zero G in the last scene of Moonraker, and I wanted to see the film. So we stayed and watched Moonraker those were the days when once you paid for a ticket, nobody cared how many times you sat and rewatched the same film. I think we talked about that last time. You were, you were imprinted on Roger Moore and I gave you a hard time. <laughs> I wouldn't say I was imprinted on Roger Moore. I Even uh, pretty early on, I would have said that I was a Connery fan. I would have picked Connery as the best Bond. And I kind of still think that, but I have a lot more respect for Roger Moore, especially in the years since he's passed, I've come to appreciate him more. And I think I started from a point of appreciating more than a lot of people did because yes, he was the first Bond I saw on screen, but it was right after watching 101 Dalmatians. That's right. That that was part of that story. It all ties together. <laughs> 
Okay, we'll get to Moonraker later on in Bond's career, but first, we got to go through Spectre. So what can you tell us about Spectre? This is one of the few Bond films where one seems to flow into the next one. There seems to be a continuation of storyline and theme between Skyfall and Spectre. And some of it is because it's got the same director. Sam Mendes, who directed Skyfall, uh, originally said he wasn't going to do a second film, but he really liked the direction that the character was going in, sort of digging more into Bond's past. So he actually became the only the second director to do two Bonds back-to-back. Of course, John Glenn, who directed five Bonds, he directed several back-to-back for Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, View to a Kill, Living Daylights, and License to Kill all throughout the 80s. So Sam Mendes back at the helm. It'll be interesting to hear what our viewers think. Spectre does not hold up the same way Skyfall does, in part because even though Sam Mendes was directing the picture, there were a lot of other cooks in the kitchen for this one. They had several people working on the script who had been working on Skyfall, but came back together for this one. John Logan, Neil Purvis, and Robert Wade, who had also done five previous Bond films, and a British playwright, Jez Butterworth, who had also been involved in Skyfall. So they have kind of more of a ragtag team for this one. Reportedly, there was some trouble in paradise with the production, which was revealed through the Sony hack in November 2014. Sony was targeted by hackers, and some of the emails that were leaked were emails between John Logan and some other members of the team. And it revealed Sony's frustration with the project that it was going way over budget. Just as some perspective, Dr. No had a budget of $1 million. $1 million. $1 Spectre had a final budget estimated between Two hundred and fifty and two hundred and seventy-five million dollars, just like a stunningly huge amount of money. Some of it is they really went all out on the special effects for this film. Apparently, um, the the awesome car chase that happens uh, along the river in Rome uh, involved smashing about seven Aston Martins in the course of trying to film that chase. So as part of that $275 million budget, about 48 million of that budget was paying for smashed cars. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. I always imagine these production companies have a guy on staff who's like Q and he's like, just bring it back in one piece. <laughs> and they never do. They remember on Quantum of Solace, there was the guy who was supposed to drive the BMW to set and he crashed it in the lake. Like he had one job to do. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, and you never think about that when you think of the film's budget. You think about how much the actors cost and, and whatnot. But yeah, destroyed property is a major feature of the Bond budget. And also explosions. Apparently, one of the explosions that was filmed in Morocco still holds the Guinness Book of World Record for largest film stunt explosion in cinematic history involving over 8,000 liters of kerosene and 24 charges each with a kilogram of high explosives. And boom! (laughs) So um, special effects really took a bite out of their profit margin. Spectre grossed $880 million worldwide, but according to Deadline Hollywood, 
This actually only resulted in a net profit of about a hundred million. Once you uh, account for all the production budgets, the talent and advertising and other costs. This is the first time in the new Daniel Craig series that we actually hear the word specter. We sort of have allusions to it in Casino Royale and in Quantum of Solace, but they couldn't use the word specter because it was tied to the rights to Thunderball, which up until just before this film came out, there was still a dispute about who was going to be able to use the characters or any elements attached to that storyline. In 2013, MGM and producer Kevin McClory, who had the rights to Thunderball, finally settled and then they were able to move forward with this film. We'll get back to this in our episode on Dr. No. Spectre originally was an acronym that stood for Special Executive for Counterintelligence, Terrorism, Revenge, and Extortion. But here they've shortened it just to like an actual word, Spectre, which of course ties into the themes of the movie around surveillance and, you know, shadow governments and things like that. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. So, Gabby, what do you have mixed up for us this week? Yeah, so I came up with a cocktail that sort of plays back to the original cocktail that was created for this enterprise, which is the Vesper. It is the cocktail that is significant with James Bond. If you want an original James Bond cocktail when you're ordering in a bar, most bartenders understand that you're talking about a Vesper. I read a really interesting interview with the film producer Barbara Broccoli, and she was talking about reimagining the Bond character each time, and she said, can only be in love with one person at a time, and each actor reimagines sort of what makes a bond. And so when I was creating this cocktail, that's sort of what I was asking myself, like what does make a bond? Like what are those sort of classic characteristics that can also be like emphasized and identified with spirits that you use? For the series of cocktails, I wanted to stick with the Vesper and play with how this drink can be reimagined all the different ways from sort of infusions to changing out the main player spirit of gin while also changing out Lillet as the fortified for something else. So in my drink, What Makes a Bond, um, I infuse Navy Strength Gin because he's a naval officer, so it just seemed right. And I infused it with Earl Grey, the sort of classic British tea and I use Lillet and vodka, and then as a garnish, I smoke lavender. And so it's just this really beautiful, slightly floral, slightly tannic, sultry drink. It alludes to the mysteriousness of Bond. It just pushes all of the sort of classic characteristics that I feel really each character throughout the series, whether it's the books, the movies, has really brought to the series. It's sort of the, the like core elements pushed in a cocktail. That's what makes a bond to me. <laughs> okay, so we get an opening shot here 
and an opening scene actually that's reminiscent of Live and Let Die to me, which is a Day of the Dead festival going on in Mexico. The one thing that was really cool about that was the long take, walking into the up the elevator. Like that was really cool, cinematically well done. Felt like a Sam Mendes move. Like that was cool. That was a great long opening shot that followed them from the parade into the hotel, up to the hotel room, and then out onto the balcony where he, Bond, has a mission to do. All one long take. Excellent. Then, after this opening action sequence, it goes into the classic title sequence, and we get the Spectre logo and uh, all these tentacles, and suddenly it's like a hentai. Uh, do you want to talk about that at all? I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm actually like too ready to jump into the overall critique, which is it feels like so much of this film is stuff that we already did in Skyfall and now are just doing here like a little more intensely. Andrew Scott's character as this insider government guy who's all about surveillance and technology and trying to remove MI6, like... It all feels like, didn't we just do this at Skyfall? Like, we did, we just did this in the last film, but, like, it was Ray Fiennes who was like, we're going to shut down MI6, like, and then he becomes MI6, and so now we have to have the same government stooge who's, you know, all about embracing the future or whatever, and then you're like, oh, no, but actually the future's kind of dangerous, too. Like, it's... <laughs> yeah, I know. The future is dangerous, too. I was like... So when Bond is back at MI6, did Q just totally Bill Gates microchip Bond? Yes, yes! <laughs> okay, so is this another crime we can lay at the feet of the producers of Spectre? Because is this where that conspiracy theory came from? Well, I actually had that same thought of like, I wonder how many conspiracy theories can be traced back to something that happened in a James Bond film that now people are like, oh yeah, they do that, the government. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I think is definitely different here, and I'm not sure I like it, is that Bond relies on Money Penny and Q, and uh, they they used to find Bond exasperating, both of them, but now they seem to just be people he recruits to help him do the mission. And it takes away a little bit from the exceptionalism of Bond to make him like just another mi6 part of a team yeah it feels very mission impossible and and almost like that was the thing that was di the difference between mission impossible and james bond like even thinking of it you know back when mission impossible was a tv series starring leonard nimoy i don't think starring leonard nimoy is the right way to phrase that but featuring leonard nimoy <laughs> but um like that it was a team thing and that James Bond is, you know, a solo guy who's on his own, you know, doing his own spy craft and then reporting back to the home office at the end of the day. And then later, when Bond is driving the Aston Martin, which had been temporarily reassigned to 009, <laughs> he yeah. accidentally flips a switch and activates 009's playlist, which is Frank Sinatra's New York, New York. Mm -hmm. uh, is this like some kind of hint as to the identity of who 009 is? Hmm. I think it's more just 
to give 009 a personality that is separate from Bond. Like you couldn't picture James Bond listening to New York, New York. Like that's a little too like mainstream. Yeah, like, yeah, that's that's not a James Bond kind of style. So I don't know, maybe some of it is just to indicate that not all the double O's are alike. Some of them have different personalities. Some some of them die and come back to life and in other James Bond films, not gonna name specific ones, but like, I mean, there are only a handful where we see the other double O's, so. Yeah, and as much as I don't wanna see Bond become an ensemble piece like Mission Impossible, I would like to see some of the other double O's occasionally. And I think that one of the things that the series runs the risk of, though, if they do that, is becoming like G.I. Joe, where there's like just one good guy organization and everybody belongs to it. And then there's one bad guy organization, Spectre, and everybody belongs to that. That's kind of what bothered me a little bit about this, too, because now Lashif was part of Spectre and every person they come across is part of Spectre. I liked when they had a variety of different enemies, Spectre being one of them, but there were other crime organizations as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it made me think of Control versus Chaos in um, Get Smart when you were saying like they're you know good agents and bad agents, and there's no one in between. I think to me, what bothered me more not that part of it of like oh, it turns out all the villains are part of the same evil organization, like. Yeah, that's, you know, weird and stretching it. But what didn't seem to make sense was this idea that, and they've all been deliberately put in Bond's way by one guy on a revenge mission. And that is the part of this that I didn't buy. Like, I totally bought, like, okay, sure, Lashif is also part of Spectre. Like, why not? I'm sure there are great benefits to being part of a larger crime syndicate. But what's the phrase that uh christoph waltz says that he was like you know the architect of all of his pain or something like that that's what it's just like that's not a bond film (laughs) yeah i agree and even if it was it's way too early to be introducing that into the series i like to think of bond's career is that it goes a little something like this the first phase of bond's career involves traditional government organizations like smirsh and that kind of thing and then the second phase of bond's career is when he encounters the really big secret organization specter and that follows through uh, a few different episodes of him trying to fight specter and ultimately defeat them and then finally the late phase bond career where he goes up against a bunch of individual master criminal types i mean since we're going to you know, go through some of the Connery bonds, which represent that Spectre chapter, you know, a lot of it, that, you know, it's kind of interesting that the Bond cinematic character is actually established through that part of his career and the before and after stuff you were describing, you know, ends up being like a Roger Moore storyline or, you know, something that, you know, now Daniel Craig is picking up. But in terms of like, who Bond is as established by Sean Connery. It is the Bond versus Spectre dynamic, but each film presents a different villain with their own agenda, like ultimately answering to Blofeld. But like you you do actually get the sense of like, you know, 
Blofeld saying, okay, number two, like you go take care of this guy. And like, that's Thunderball. <laughs> and you get another, you get another Spectre, you know, hench person and their sub hench people in um, Diamonds Are Forever or in From Russia With Love. Okay. So now that we're getting into the nitty gritty nitpicks, I got my usual list of nitpicks with this film. Well, I hope one of your nitpicks isn't with uh, Dave Bautista as um, the odd job crossed with Jaws, like super hench person fighting on the train. Like Bautista, I think, did a great job. No, he did a good job. I'm thinking more along the lines of things like Bond crashes his Aston Martin in Rome and suddenly it's international news thanks to the BBC. Like, what was the character that played, that was his love interest? Uh, Leia Sido. I'm not going to remember her character's name either. Yeah. The psych, the psychiatrist. Yeah, her. At one point in time in the, on the train, she comes to his rescue with his own gun, which she fires and that doesn't work. Again, we know she can't fire his Walter because it's coded to his palm print, as we learned in the last movie. I paused it and double-checked. It was not the Sig Sauer. It was, in fact, Bonds, Walter PPK, and the Internet Movie Firearms database confirms it. (laughs) And she's not the only one who grabs his gun and tries to use it. There was an earlier scene where uh, White tried to kill him with his own gun, and we know he can't use it because it's keyed to his fingerprints. Unless those rules are inconvenient and then forget about them and hope that the true fans don't even come to this film. (laughs) Or speaking of crashes, there's the time that Bond is chasing the vehicles in the end in a plane and he goes through a barn and he loses the windows, but the, (laughs) the vehicles like they spin and turn away different directions, but then they happen to cross his path again, right in time for him to crash into them with the plane. Yeah, I mean, this just sort of goes to a larger thing about the Daniel Craig Bonds, that they are trying to take a more serious approach in a way that, like, the Connery Bonds and the Roger Moore Bonds did not try at all. I feel like Pierce Brosnan, like, is a good, like, transition Bond. You know, there is definitely a good deal of silliness. So many puns. So many puns. But, you know, like a general seriousness about the action, you know, minus a few tanks busting through a giant wall. But, you know, when you get to Daniel Craig, you're sort of used to a certain level of seriousness about the action, about the plot, about the themes. And so when there's a stunt like this that just doesn't quite fit plausibility rules, it really stands out in a way that there's all sorts of stuff that goes bonkers nuts in the Connery films, you know, like a person getting eaten alive by piranhas, you know, that you just like, you're like, okay, so this is the universe we live in. Anything could happen here. <laughs> well, you say that, you say that it's, it's more serious, but then yes. can you imagine any other Bond pointing a gun at and talking to a mouse? Who sent you? <laughs> I think he says like, who sent you? <laughs> the fuck was that about i it must have been you know they they just kept it like i bet daniel craig was like i want to i want to shoot a mouse and they're like okay 
for all his flaws, I cannot imagine Connery saying, who sent you to a mouse? <laughs> I, I guess like for this Bond character, it makes sense that he's talking to himself, basically. Like, but you can't picture other Bonds talking to themselves. Despite the fact that he is a genius comic actor. Like, he's so great in Knives Out and really great in Logan Lucky. So, I mean, it's not Daniel Craig's fault. It's the character they've built. And the overall tone of the film. It's just messed up. They don't know if they want to be serious or comedic. Like, all previous Bonds, I feel like, struck a good balance between the lighthearted fun and the serious agent stuff. But this one things just don't make sense like what was up with uh you know how did bond know the whole base would explode why did the was mi6 turned into some kind of crazy fun house at the end like some circus fun house complete with an you know high wire net like he jumps from a bunch of floors and like how did that net get there to catch him this is what I meant about like too many cooks in the kitchen in the writing room like there are things like this that happen where instead of trying to find the like simplest explanation for things, they were like, let's just add a net. And there are too many people like working on the script to say, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. Who's, who said there could be a net here? <laughs> yeah, but then they'll toss off things that are just completely serious and then ignore them. Did you catch Vesper Lynn's interrogation tape? I realized that was thrown in there for a reason, what it was i have no idea i think it's because they're setting up the bond girl in this film to be like the next vesper and so it's kind of important to sort of reestablish this like oh that's right like bond can have feelings and is looking for somebody and and like just a couple movies ago he was ready to leave the whole spy life behind and like go live on a beach with vesper and they're sort of reestablishing like or reawakening that feeling. Yeah. But then they just show it, but never go into any more detail about it. They cast it aside almost immediately. Oh no. I'm, I'm not saying that, that they succeeded. I'm, I'm suggesting that is what they were trying to do with that, with introducing that tape was like trying to establish this, maybe Bond's going to throw in the towel after, after this, mission and leave and go be you know with with his new psychologist girlfriend i mean just thinking about where we go in the next film you know supposedly bond 25 um, no time to die starts with bond coming out of retirement so what they're setting up in bond 24 is he's done like we've only gotten him for four films but he's done already <laughs> so so what they're gonna reboot the thing again i mean we just got here the whole Blofeld reveal is the precise moment we can no longer consider these films as prequels. Now they're reboots. But in my head canon, they're still prequels. I mean, I'm sticking with that. I will die on this hill. Well, this is what I meant about, like, you know, when they reintroduced Daniel Craig in Casino Royale, you sort of get the sense of, okay, maybe this is a new Bond filling in after Pierce, the Pierce Brosnan bond has retired and they're just recycling, you know, the old storylines, but in a modern setting, because like, that sounds cool. 
But then when they reintroduce Spectre and reintroduce Blofeld, and now they're like, nope, just kidding. We're actually recycling the whole thing. Like, we're going to pretend that all the Connery bonds didn't even happen. Like, that's when it's like, what the fuck, guys? Like, you can't do that. Yeah, and now we get to why this is one of my least favorite Bond films. And... I want to just forget it ever happened. Well, that's what I mean. Like, I mean, I hope No Time to Die, they just like forget that Spectre happened and then say, okay, no, they're like, we're going to go back to saying this is all new. Because I don't think it'll work if they're going to pretend these are all prequels. And then who is Connery? Is this supposed to come before Connery? Like, in any way? I don't, I don't see how this will work. It doesn't work for me anyway. I mean, Bond and Blofeld being that close just doesn't work for me. The The greatest thing about Blofeld was he was the ultimate mysterious villain. You never really saw his face. Yeah, the fact that you only see above the cat line of Blofeld in a couple of the films is a major part of believing that that guy is a super, super villain. He's so much of a super villain, you're not even convinced like his direct reports ever get to see him. Having him then suddenly like way too close to the chest with Bond, not only is a complete recycle of what we saw with Skyfall, but also makes whatever this is too personal and unnecessarily personal for the Bond character. Because he's doing it for Queen and Country. He's not on this mission against Blofeld because he's trying to get revenge or like he has a connection to the guy. No, that's not what it's about for Bond. So introducing that element seems to add unnecessarily complicated stakes to what has always been a pretty simple, like, it's the mission. Okay, time to recast one role with your dream cast member. For me, it would be recasting Q. My choice would be Richard Ayoade. He's British, he's not Caucasian, so add some diversity there, and he is a comedian. And I can't think of anyone more perfect. He's known for the IT crowd, but he's also known for a show he had on UK TV called Gadget Man. I can't think of a more perfect casting. How about you? I don't know. I, all right. So I'm actually going to say I like Christoph Waltz as Blofeld. I think the direction that they went with the character was wrong, but I love seeing him in everything. And... I think he's a compelling villain. If I were to recast anyone, I mean, Lady Sido is great in Blue is the Warmest Color, and I think that's her sweet spot, French lesbian <laughs> three-hour romances. But I would have loved to see someone with a little bit more cheek, a little bit more moxie as the Bond girl. So I'm going to say maybe Alicia Vikander. I, I don't know. She might not have enough enough moxie either but but uh, yeah alicia uh, some maybe alicia v condor as the bond girl nope nope veto veto on bra cup size alone <laughs> if they don't have at least a c cup nope v Condor's great but she is no bond girl come on no we need to get back to old school bond there's just too much angsty bond going on this is like turning into emo bond so actually what was interesting about re-watching specter is that there were some elements that i thought were in this film that weren't um somehow in my head i had remembered specter as being 
somewhat more of a return to form with the ridiculousness and the camp of old Bond films. And what, and so in my head, that meant that it also had the theme song, that it also had like car chases that were like timed with the theme song. Like, like I had in my head all these things from like Goldeneye and, and from the classic, Con the other classic Connery Bonds, you know, that were more like jazzy and swingy and, and things like that. And it's not campy. And that's not, like, it's campy in the wrong ways. Like, Christoph Waltz is is camp in human form. But they, you know, it's missing all of those other little elements of flair, which, you know, like, weirdly, in my head, I was expecting them rewatching the film and they didn't appear. Like, I, I wanted that classic theme to come back. And and for me, after rewatching Dr. No, which we'll get to in our next episode, you know, the comparison between this film and that film is really stark. Okay, well, now that you've plugged the next episode, I think it's time we wrapped it up. Yes, join us next time on Geek Channel 8 for our take on the original Dr. No and how we compare it to this and other films. And in the meantime, you should like, subscribe, rate, do all the things. Just tell somebody about the podcast. It's the only way we can get this out to people. We don't have a big advertising budget or anything. So competing with all the big media companies' podcasts is not easy. But until next time, this is Eric. This is Johanna. Signing off. Um, Silva, um, or Bond says something like, you know, M's never had me tied up in a chair before. And Silva says her loss. You can hear the plane. <laughs>